and gentlemen, to another Third Person podcast episode. My name is Chris Milhouse. I am here joined, as always, with my co-host, Mr. Daryl Hammond. How are you, Daryl? How do you do, sir? I have and a hard out today. I'm, I'm chairing a, a meeting, so maybe we could do an hour. Yeah, no, I mean, we'll, we'll, keep it, we'll keep it tight. We'll keep it locked in for the most part, I think. Uh, I got to do these meetings to keep going, keep myself from uh, going nuts, you know, with all this fucking isolation and shit. Yeah, man, but, uh, you know, things are looking up, I got to say. Um, and before we kind of jump into that, we have our, uh, our producer, Jim Search, with us, as always, as well. So how are you, Jim? Hey, man, living the dream. Nice. Uh, Weekend's here. The weekend, the long weekend for you, Jim, but the weekend is here for us. It's a special Friday. This is, I don't have to go to, I don't have to go back to work for two weeks. So I set my alarm clock on fire and it's time to roll. (laughs) Are you, uh, are are you on the sauce? Uh, yeah. I mean, (laughs) 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 that's a, that's the most eloquent way of putting it. Uh, indeed. Uh, you know, I I don't have to work for two weeks and that is a fact. So yes. Nice. Mm-hmm. Nice guys. I mean, I look. I'm. I feel. I feel good in this aspect of the fact that like it seems like there's a light at the end of the tunnel now. Like it seems like we're starting to pull ourselves out of this pandemic slowly. But you know, everyone's getting seems to be getting vaccinated right now. Um, you know, there just seems like a better vibe. Like I just was in L.A. last weekend, and uh, I did some shows. I did a show at the Hollywood Improv. They did a um, a front patio show, not inside. So it's just like a you know, a few tables of people and stuff. It was definitely different, but it was, I've never seen that positive of a vibe at a place like, especially in Los Angeles where, you know, a lot of people are bitter and, you know, like tend to pretend like they're in good moods, but this is like a genuine good mood that I felt from everybody where it just seemed like everyone's just kind of excited to, well, you know, hopefully get back to normal, at least somewhat, you know, I mean, things are reopening or getting like, you know, we're at like small capacity right now for most things, but it seems like, there's good, you know, good things ahead and we can see those good things. We're not there yet, but it's, it's, it is a good vibe. I don't, I don't know how you guys feeling about New York. I mean, is there that type of vibe around New York? I mean, I don't go out that much. I'm just intensely jealous that you were in Los Angeles at the improv. That is, that's a big wow. Wow. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it was great. And shout out to the improv for doing these patio shows. I mean, they're just doing kind of impromptu things where they're, it's not really planned. They're just kind of like, we're going to do dinner on our, you know, front patio. And then, you know, they throw a mic up there with the speaker basically. So it's kind of, you know, it's almost like guerrilla warfare or guerrilla radio back in the day, if you want to call that. But like, um, they, you know, that type of stuff where they're just going with it and it's cool. It was cool to be there and it was good to, you know, see people I haven't seen in well over a year. So that was nice. I mean, I did you see um comic wise uh ian bag was hosting the whole thing which was pretty oh, cool a lovely guy uh, he's, if, if you guys don't if anybody's listening to this and you don't know ian bag google him he's got like amazing tonight show sets i think he's got a um a great special out as well he was in last comic standing he's just really funny great crowd work comic just absolutely just so smart uh like in the moment type of dude uh i i get jealous of like guys like him and David Tell and like, you know, mm. Big J Okerson, the people that are great with crowd work and like can just make a bit seamlessly appear out of nothing. And that's what Ian Bag does. So like him hosting the whole thing was great. 
Um, you know, but it, it was fun. It was, it was, you know, the, the improv's got like a, a new kitchen or something. The food was really good. So if anybody's listening to this in Los Angeles, go check it out. I mean, they're doing this every weekend now where they've got comedy on the front patio and they, they're super. You heard about that church where they're doing comedy in the amphitheater? Is that New York? That? Is it in New York? LA. Oh no, but I know that in New York, that stand up New York did something like that where they were, because that was the only place that could do indoor gatherings. So stand up New York took over a church and started doing shows. When are we going to do some shows? Yeah. Hey, I'm ready, man. Trust me. I mean, I got the, uh, you know, the first vaccine, I got the first shot of my vaccine, just waiting on the second one. Once I'm, you know, completely good to go, which will be in a couple weeks. uh, I'm ready to start getting out there, man. We, I've got a couple people that already asked us, uh, you know, hit me up about getting us together to come, you know, do like some shows. So maybe like DC and, you know, Philly area and stuff like that. So we'll start slowly branching out. I feel if you're up for it, you know? Yeah. I want to do shows. I mean, um, I, I love, I love the Philly area. Like we had a, I, I thought we had a great time in Philly. Crowds in Philly are great. Chills, man. I, I love those crowds. crowds. I mean, Jim Chills. and I have done stand up down in um, Atlantic city, yeah, which is a little bit different, but it's still, it was a lot of fun and people down there, it's a good sense of humor, man. Just and we were we were in Philly too at uh was the Philly Comp. We uh did oh, right, right. and then we popped into Philly on our way up. Right, yeah, and I um I don't I don't recommend that place, but <laughs> 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 I do good. not recommend that one. But uh, there's shout out to the punchline in Philly, which is fantastic, and Helium Comedy Club there too. That they're great. Um but yeah, I, I can't wait to get back to doing some stand up and I can't wait to be like just doing some live shows. I know April 2nd, New York City is opening up comedy clubs for indoor stuff. So April 2nd uh, was a good big, big day. A lot of clubs like Gotham are reopening. I mean, it's limited capacity, but it's something. You yeah. Know? And um, I, I was going to say, I think today, um, March 19th, uh, the restaurants in New York are at 50% capacity. So they've bumped up, uh, bumped up the. That's huge. So th- that's pretty huge. Yeah, I feel like um, by the time, you know, May rolls around, we should hopefully have like at least 50% capacity in the comedy clubs, but maybe wishful thinking, maybe it might be not till June, but we'll see. I think it depends on like, you know, where people are vaccine wise and, you know, just what the infection rate looks like, right? Because like, yeah, just wait to see that the numbers are, are down low enough, you know, where they, they feel comfortable seeing a trend or whatever. Right, but yeah, boys, I feel good because I'm I, I'm looking at those dates and I'm looking at these uh, this horizon and it looks good for me. I mean, it looks good for all of us, you know. What happened, what's happening with Cuomo? Did he get caught going to the park saying weird shit to chicks? Fuck you, Daryl. Fuck you. Callback game on Yo, points. Daryl, my God, we're, mm. we're back in the comedy clubs already. This guy's busting my balls. Right <laughs> All out. Yeah. You try to pick up one woman in a park one time, and you tell it on a podcast, <laughs> and here we go. You know, I was, like, walk, I was walking in the building the other day, and and uh, this guy, a, one of the porters in the building, I he was carrying a, a bag from a store, and he goes, "Yo, D, got some. You got some." Yo, D got some Mister. Wait, Yo, D got some Mister. Daniels in there. He got some Mister. Daniels in there, and someone in the lobby went called out. <laughs> <laughs> like you didn't even have a chance to say what was there. Like yeah. there was in. That's it. That's God bless it. that person in the lobby, man. That's hilarious. Well, the, that tells me that people in my lobby is. Uh, 
have seen me uh, <laughs> under the influence. Yeah, well, you know, they, uh, you live in a good building, my friend. You live in a good building. I, do. <laughs> I don't know, guys. I'm, I'm just excited. I'm excited to get back to New York soon. Hopefully, uh, about the second week of April, I'll be back. So I'm excited to swing on back through, come home. I got my apartment still there. So uh, we'll be uh, back to some shows at New York City in no time, you know? Mm. Yeah. We'll get that one in Connecticut was bitching. Yeah, we did that show in Connecticut. Shout out to the uh, Fairfield Comedy Club. I mean, it was outdoors, but they have an indoor spot. So hopefully, I think Connecticut's ahead of us with their numbers. So, like, Connecticut might be open for indoor stuff already. Um, I know comics have been doing a lot of things out at um, – there's that casino comedy club uh, in Connecticut at uh, – I believe it's Mohegan Sun. Yeah. Comics, yeah. And I know that they've been doing shows indoors there at the casino. So I'm just hoping by the time, you know, I get back, hopefully some things will – be ready to go, and we can, you know, we can be all vaxxed up and free to, you know, spit in people's mouths again, like I said in the last podcast. <laughs> what, is, what did you say? On the last podcast, I said, I just want to spit in somebody's mouth again. You know, like, yeah. that's all, yeah. <laughs> that's A simpler true. time. Simpler times, my friend. That's the, we, all uh, that, we all want that, Chris. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they do. I we mean, spit in someone's mouth. Yeah, I mean, I'm a red-blooded American. I just want to spin somebody's mouth, just like every. That's the American dream, am I right? Yeah, absolutely. I want to see uh, two chicks uh, topless make out. <laughs> right, okay, man. Yeah, who doesn't want that? That is why I moved to this country. That's why I came here. That's a dream. That is the freedom that America provides you that you need in your life. Mm-hmm. Well, because I've never seen it before, and yet I. I, I, I thirst for it. <laughs> I thirst for this, and I've, I've never seen anything like that. So, you know, I can dream, right? Oh, my God. This pre-show is on fire today, guys. I feel like if this is any sort of precursor to what this Howie Mandel interview is going to be, oh, I'm, I'm excited. <laughs> yeah. We have, we have, I mean, we got, we've gotten some pretty good feedback, by the way, from our, our last one with John Cryer, our last uh, podcast episode. A lot of people are saying nice things. And I just want to take this time to remind everybody, if you are listening right now, make sure you follow us on social media. Pick up your phone. It's probably already out. You're probably already listening to this through your phone. Add us on social media, at Daryl C. Hammond, and I'm at Chris Milhouse. Jim is at Jim Search, and uh, make sure you give us a rating when you when you listen to our podcast. Rate us the five stars if you don't mind. Give us the old five star treatment, even if you think we're only a third star podcast. But uh, we have you know we've been getting a lot of good feedback sh- and a lot of my shrink listens to it, and he says all his shrink friends listen to it. <laughs> That's great. So there it is. We got the shrink block out in, in the West Coast, anyway. God, I can only imagine what they're saying. They're like that that guy Millhouse. Man, we need to get him into some fucking therapy quick. Yeah, this spitting in the mouth thing is. <laughs> we got to look into this. Oh, like, did you guys hear the episode about him picking up women in the park? We need we need to help him immediately. Attempting to pick up women in the park. Yeah, attempting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like how I got corrected on that. I was like, you didn't you didn't quite do it. You attempted. Yeah. Like, yeah. Glad, yeah. I got, glad I got the attempt in there. All right, Dude, uh, let's bring on that this cool cat. So we've got a great guest for us, uh, for everyone today here. Uh, we have an, um, the amazing Howie Mandel joining us on the podcast. So let's see if he's ready to join us. Hello. Howie. Yes, Chris. Hey. Hey, Howie. How are you? 
Howie Mandel, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the podcast, my friend. It's great to be here. Fantastic. It's just... uh... Hi, Howie. It's really nice to meet you. Name's Nice to meet you. Big fan, Daryl. I'm a big (laughs) fan of everything you've done, doing. Right back at you, my brother. Thank you so much for joining our little podcast. That's great. How long have you guys been doing this? Uh, We started it during the pandemic, probably around... August. Well, starting during the when you say I started during the pandemic, that could have been ten minutes ago. Yes, that's true. About August, yeah, Chris. This is why I love having comedians, you know, fellow stand-up comics on the podcast because they will bust your balls like no other, which is fantastic. This is a really smart dude, and he wants you to clean up your prose. Okay. All right. Absolutely. I'll get it together. My my apologies to you both. All right. <laughs> Uh, Howie, uh, you are you know, a stand-up comic for a very long time. Uh, I'm a stand-up comic. been doing it for about 15 years. So I know Daryl from doing stand-up. Um, but yeah, man, like, uh, I, I admire your career for, you know, you've had such a brilliant, fantastic career over the years. Um, I'm just curious, like, what were the early days of the comedy store like? Oh, the, you know, the early days of the comedy store, you know, you change your perspective. I've been doing it for 45 years now. Yeah. Uh, well, I don't know if that's 45, 43. On April 9th, I still I remember it like it's yesterday, but on April 19th, 1977, I'm from Toronto, Canada, and uh, I got dared to get up on stage. Uh, there's a club up in Canada called Yuck Yucks. I don't know if you ever played yep. Yuck Yucks, but uh, I, got, I got dared to go up by some friends, and I went up. And the dare, I wasn't a comedian. I have not aspired. I'd never aspired to do comedy. I never, I didn't aspire to be in show business. I was just, uh, you know, I've talked about it. We'll talk, maybe talk about it in a, in a couple of minutes, but I, I was fucked up a lot mentally. And, uh, part of my, uh, and I loved, uh, Daryl, I loved your Netflix, uh, well, thank you. You know, you. and and anytime anybody's as open as that about whatever issues they have, it it's, it, it warms my heart because that kind of saved my life, removing the stigma of mental health, which I, I've you yeah, know is my men- little soapbox. Mental illness but, is not an airborne virus, right? Absolutely. Make up T-shirts. Anyway, but mental health is not an airborne virus. I think that there's anybody alive aside from people who have gone through. I mean. It's nice to hold up, a, uh, you know, the billboard like me. I'm. Uh, you had a, a, a kind of a, a really tough beginning. I had uh, my own uh, issues. Uh, mine weren't family issues, but bi- biological issues. But but that being said, part of the deal for me was, um, uh, you know, I'm also diagnosed with severe ADHD. And part of severe ADHD is uh, kind of not being um, aware or taking in ramifications. So I'll just do shit and then, you know, live with the consequences, which is good, you know, and I believe that that philosophy has garnered me some success. But uh, the, the, the issue was they said, you should get up and do it. And in my mind, the joke was that somebody was going to say, ladies and gentlemen, Howie Mandel, and I was going to walk out on stage. And that's the fucking joke, you know, because I'm Howie Mandel. I'm not a comedian. You know, I'm selling carpet and and the audience and I'm not a comedian. That's the, the extent of my writing. That was the extent of my thought. That was the extent of my planning. And then what happened was, you know, Mark goes, ladies and gentlemen, Howie Mandel. And I walk out and you guys have all been on stage before. I kind of walk out to a smattering of applause. It was like 1230 in the morning. I walk out to a smattering of applause. And Isn't this funny that I'm here? Because there's no reason for me to be on this fucking stage. I have nothing. I have nothing. And, and the thing was that 
you know, after the applause died down, you know, you've played comedy clubs, you know, you're blinded. It's the first time I was ever on a stage. You're mm. blinded by the spotlight. You're looking at the mic. And I look down at the front row and there's a bunch of strange faces staring up at me like, okay, funny boy, this is it. And it got quiet. And for whatever reason, well, I know for what reason, because I just got so filled with terror. I was hmm. in this place. I just got so like, I, I mean, every inch, every capillary, every cell on me was just terror. And I looked down at their eyes and that terror kind of brewed up. I, I don't know if either of you are familiar with me at the beginning of my career, but if you watch any YouTube specials or the young comedian special, you'll see this. So the, it, it was, I was terrified and I thought, Oh fuck, how do I get out of this? And I was looking down at the people and I thought, okay, 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 okay. I think I, you know, my persona was this really hyper but it was really just a terrified young guy, you know, in front of people for no reason. I had no reason to be there. I had no preparation to be there. So I started going, okay, okay, okay. All right. All right. Okay. Okay. I'm going to, and that was just me, you know, I, I'm going to, let me think of something funny. Let me think of an old joke. Let me think, but I was just going, okay, okay. And at my terror, the audience started giggling because when you're uncomfortable, the thing to do, and they started laughing. And then I started, and then I heard them laughing and I'm going, what, what? What? And I'm so insecure. What? Like, a, you know, I'm checking my pants or my pants split or my fly down. There's somebody standing behind. Okay. All right. All right. And then when I get, and that was making them laugh more. And I just happened to put my hands in my pocket and I've suffered uh, with obsessive compulsive disorder all my life. And even in those days in 77, I was carrying rubber gloves because I didn't want to touch things in case I had to go to a public restroom. And I pull out the rubber glove and I just had no thought, no planning. And I, for lack of, I was just a guy on a high wire. I just pulled it over my head and over my nose and I started breathing and the fingers were going up and down and the crowd started roaring. Mm -hmm. And then, and then I, I just inflated it with my nose and it popped off and they just laughed and clacked. And, and instinctually, I just went, good night. And I ran off the stage and Mark Breslin was standing there. He goes, can you come back tomorrow? And I said, what, what, for, for what? And he goes, to do another set. I go, well, what would I do? He goes, do the same thing. I go, what the fuck did I do? What did I do? <laughs> and, and I started showing up at the club and, and um, I, I found a place, you know, I never felt like I fit in anywhere. I didn't, mm -hmm. you know, in, in the mid seventies, um, the you know, that was Studio 54, and those were clubs, and people were going to discos and dressing nice and dancing and drinking. And I didn't dance and I didn't drink, and I, I don't gamble, so you know, I didn't have a group of friends where I can get together once a week and play poker. I didn't, I'm not good at sports, so I didn't have a, a game of hoops that I can get together with a bunch of guys with. So I found this club where there was a bunch of uh, equally, uh, ne'er do uh, you know, equally leveled ne'er do wells to just these. People who were okay with being silly without worrying about being an outcast. And, you know, that's where I hung. And with no, still no aspiration of making this a living. And, and even to this day, today, if I was a janitor, some, I promise you, I would be happy. When people ask me, you know, any advice on making it, to me, making it was just finding that path. It's, I, I don't believe that, that notoriety or money. I mean, they're all nice to have, but so many of us in our life are not, have nothing to look forward to in the course of a day and, 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 uh, you know, and, and don't have anything to look forward to doing in their life. And, 
I couldn't wait. It doesn't matter what I'm doing just to have that moment on stage, you know, and, and that was the first time that I felt like I had any connection, any connection to humanity. And even if I was just acting like an idiot and they were laughing at me, they were that that's a connection. I I never had a connection in my life to anybody. I didn't have a lot of friends and that was a connection. And I didn't realize until this pandemic you know, for the last 43 years, there hasn't been, I think, the longest span of time that I have not been on stage was maybe two weeks. And even as I tour, you know, when I was touring, you know, and I was doing up to 300 or 200 uh, nights a year up until last year for the last 40 years. Um, and and even when I was touring, if I played a casino or if I played a, a theater, if I was staying in town overnight, I'd always say to the driver, where's the comedy club? Where, where's the comedy club? And I, I would drop in at one in the morning when there's just maybe four people there who have, uh, you know, drank a little too much. And they were, they were, that's not COVID, right, Daryl? <laughs> it's okay on Zoom. I'm not as scared, but just the sound gives me PTSD. Um, anyway, that, and that sounded like a loogie. That sounded like not just a cop. Yeah, pardon me. It sounded shitty. Yeah, you're right. It did. It didn't sound, but it was deep. And and you know, this is an audio uh, experience for the people who are listening. So I think the cough really <laughs> wet. Cough. It, it was a wet, and it had texture to it, and it was really well produced. Anyway, the point the point was that I uh, I have ADHD. I told you that in the story. So now uh, that story's gone for me. It's really hard for me to concentrate. That's why I don't have a GED. I couldn't finish school. I can't really focus. But I never aspired to be a comedian. And, oh, I, I, here's what I was saying. During this pandemic is the first time, you know, in a year, I have not been in front of a live audience. And I'm really suffering for it. And personally suffering. I didn't done, realize have any, how... Have you done any Zoom type of stuff? I tried. It's not... It doesn't, it's not the it's same, not, man. It's definitely different. It's so different. What, what, personally, for me, what I get out of comedy, I know that's not the same for the audience either. And ultimately, it's all about the audience and, the, you know, but it's not really. It's really about me. I have the necessity to I, I have the need to stand in front of live people and watch them react in the room that I'm in. So regardless of, you know, being in a in a career for 43 years and like you, Daryl, have done so many different things from, you know, acting to stand up to SNL, to doing your documentary. The one, the one, I don't know if you gave this up, but the one common thing that I have throughout everything I've done, whether it's AGT, Deal or No Deal, being on St. Elsewhere is stand-up comedy. And that's the one thing that I need, I need the most. And that's, it killed me. I moved my therapist into a whole new tax bracket through this pandemic. I'm doubly as medicated as I ever was you know, and this is really, really tough. I miss stand-up. Yeah, I mean, like for me, I, I, I perf- I'm a live performer. That's what I've been working at since I was a teenager. It's right. what I do. I lived in L.A., like at the foot of the hill, just below the comedy store. I, I did shows there, you know, two or three nights a week, and then Chris would have shows like at the improv and shit. And SNL, it's always been a live, I'm a live performer, and now I don't do that. And, it, and, and, and people don't know what that, you know, and there's, uh, it's really hard to articulate what that live experience is to most of the audience and probably most of the people listening to this. 
you know, it's just another form of, you know, garnering, you know, entertainment, education or whatever. But there is for the people that like us who do it, there is something palpable that kind of enriches whatever it is, our art form, our humanity and whatever that people don't know. So uh, that's the, you know, professionally, that's the thing I miss, miss the most and probably medically, psychiatrically, that's the thing I need the most. You know, hey, is that? Can I ask a, um, a question about ADHD? Um, you the, you get met, receive medication for that, right? I'm not taking my ADHD medication as the at the moment. I'm taking, uh, you know, I'm I, I, I won't mention my medications because what happens with us is when we talk about our uh, issues. You know, a lot of people have issues, and I think the, the, the one thing to uh, deal with is the fact that just to know that we're not you're not alone. You know, and other people have these problems. But when um, somebody uh, of your stature comes on, you know, a a kind of uh, a platform and says, this is what I do, aside from talking about it and seeking help, um, when you hear what I take or maybe what you take, that may not be good for you, you know, and I'm uh, I'm not a doctor, though I played one on TV. Uh, <laughs> the only advice I have and the only information that I want to share as far as that side is just get help. And the way to get help is just to talk about it and remove the stigma. And whether it's you're talking to a friend on a podcast or you're talking to a neighbor or a spouse or a parent or hopefully somebody professional just keep talking about it. And I think the big issue is somebody as old as I am, you know, I'm 65 years old. So I grew up in a, in an era where you don't talk about it. Listen, I had, unlike you, Daryl, I had a really supportive, wonderful family. But then again, I had a a supportive, wonderful family where I was raised in the fifties and sixties where I was just quirky and they just went along with that. You know, my younger brother who's smaller when we didn't get along and instead of fighting and punching, like most siblings did, he could pick up the lid of the, of the hamper, of the laundry hamper, and just hold it out. And I would scream like a little girl and I'd be gone for hours. And that was just the quirkiness that was Howie. That wasn't, let's go talk to a doctor about this. Let's see why he's freaked out. Well, let's see why he doesn't have any friends at school. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't tie my shoes because the, the shoes had, the laces had touched the, the ground and they were dirty and I didn't want to touch them. So I would leave them untied. And I, and I had people believing in, even in third grade that I didn't know how to tie my shoes. Could you show me how to tie my shoes? So, the, you know, the, the, I thought I was saving myself the uh, issue of whatever would happen or I'd be triggered if I touched my shoelaces. But then everybody just thought I was an idiot and I was stupid and I didn't pick up things. And and that's just the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> yeah, I, I was I was the oddball. And I've told this, Chris, before. I, I remember my high school football taking me aside one day and asked me, Am I okay? And, um, you know, this is Melbourne, Florida, deep south, a fair number of years ago. Am I okay? And I was like, yeah, I guess. Why? And he said, because there's something about you that just ain't right. And it was the first time an adult said to me, you're defective. There's something about you that just isn't right. And... You know, I come from a place where if you showed a bad attitude or you were, they used to call it sulled up, sullen, um, you know, there were consequences for that sort of thing. With regard, I'll step off in a second, but with regard to the medication, 
that stuff, when I took that for the first time, Howie, I, I, it, to desire something at 8 a.m. and still want the same thing at 2 p.m. was a new experience to me. Suddenly well, here's that, the thing. But my thing, when, when I took my medication the first time, um, the first medication, and I don't know if you're, you're having the same experiences, you know, our body chemistry is a constant uh, changing and evolving with every human being and you have to get it just right. And, you know, I'm 65 years old and I'm here to tell you at this point in my life, you know, there are ebbs and flows. And the first thing that I took, I mean, crashed me so fucking hard. You know, Mm -hmm. it was so, it was worse than anything I ever felt. And then, but I was open about it and they got me off of that, weaned me off of that and put me on something else. And it takes a a minute to kind of adjust you know, whatever it is that works with you and your body chemistry. But then again, as somebody who's lived through all these decades of whatever suffering I've, I've lived through, I'm not taking the same medication as I was three years ago. You know, I'm always trying to find that, that well, real I mean, balance. Yeah. Your body chemistry, I was told changes every seven years. I didn't know that seven your years, but that makes sense. Your physiology is slightly different and, You'll respond differently to, to different medications. Every seven years, the whole thing goes through a big cellular wash. Um, so but what you are watching when you watch my early career, what you're watching is the, uh, you know, a terrified, neurotic. Uh, in fact, people used to, you know, um, if you watch my, my first HBO Young Comedian special, my first HBO Young Comedian special, the other kids on it who uh, I don't know what they did afterwards were, uh, it was me, Jerry Seinfeld, Richard Lewis, Harry Anderson, and it was hosted by the Smothers Brothers. And if you look at me, I'm wearing, uh, I wore w- white scrubs, you know, and that's what I wore on my, um, whenever I did my act, because people would tell me, what are you, uh, are you insane? He's insane. He's a borderline psychotic. He's crazy. And that was, that became my persona. It wasn't the persona I was putting on. It was, you know, that's how people identified me because I was always like so hyper, but I was terrified and, and didn't know what was coming next and didn't know. And that worked for me career wise. I'm lucky that whatever, was considered a, you know, an issue became a career, but, and to that end, you know, even now I'm authentic. I'm not terrified anymore on stage, but I try to regain that terror. Yeah. I like to, you know, obviously after all this time, I kind of have an understanding for the audience, my audience, and I can give them what they want, but I hope to be taken off of that, that path Whereas I, I love a technical issue. I love when something goes wrong in the room. You know, I love that because that makes that night different than any other night. And that's more fulfilling for me. And that's why I look for that club after I've done my concert and given the paid audience exactly what they want. Yeah. I need to go to a place where it's for me. And yeah. maybe I won't do anything from my act, but I can just, you know, have yeah. my little strangers in group therapy moment. Yeah. That's also your training, um, guessing what a group of people you never met before might find funny. So when things go wrong, I know that I got hired. One of the reasons I got hired was I was really good in a crisis. I'd done too many stand-up sets, you know, for so many years. And even when I started at SNL, I was still doing 300 nights a year at the cellar downtown. Yes. but people don't, that crisis is what tests it. You know, I, I, I've told this story before, but there's an, because I tour so much, I was, uh, you know, I'm flying all over the place. 
sometimes I'm lucky enough to fly privately. And somebody said to me uh, at one point, uh, you know, the pilot you have this week is like the best pilot you can get. And I said to her, I said, well, that's, that's heartwarming, but well, how do you know, like I've been flying for like 40 years, why, and this flight, aside from whatever weather, how do I know this pilot is better than any, like, why would you even say that? And they said, you don't want to, I mean, we told you it's the best pilot, but you don't want to know it's the best pilot. And I said, why? They said, because when you get your pilot's license, um, you have to re-up that license and keep going, you know, uh, I guess every six months or maybe once a year, you got to be rated on whatever flight, whatever you're flying, you know? And the way they do that and retest pilots is they put them in a simulator. And in the simulator, they'll give them a flame out. They'll give them, you know, horrible, uh, they'll take it into a dive. They'll give them wind shear. They'll give them every fucking problem that could arise. That's what, and the people, the pilot that handles that with the, in the, in the most calm, professional way without panicking and just deals with it like it's just another moment in their day. That's the best pilot. And by the same token, that's a great analogy for life. You know, shit happens to all of us. Horrible shit. You know, it's the way we react to it. And it's how, you know, you see people that overreact to, you know, you've been through, you guys have been through a lot in your life, but you'll see somebody who goes through absolutely nothing and they're destroyed. They're totally destroyed. You know, as, as a Jew, you know, I grew up with, with uh, Holocaust family, you know, survivors, and the, the dichotomy between somebody who lost their whole family and in front of them and watched that horror and were able to escape and come out here to North America, and make a new life for themselves and be productive citizens and a family. And then other people who were in the same camp are just were never able to get. And I don't knock them. I'm just saying the luck of the draw is how you get up and especially in stand up comedy, you know. It's always funny to me. You know, I think stand-up comedy is the luck of the draw as far as, you know, uh, when you go to an amateur night someplace, you see people get up and you go, what the fuck is this person thinking? There's nothing funny here. You know, when you watch a comic go into the toilet and die, you just think it's the worst, most uncomfortable thing you could ever see. But what I learned to realize was, you know, the luck of the draw is my sensibility or your sensibility, we're lucky enough that that is shared by a larger group than this other goofball who went on on amateur night. Nobody's there of their own fruition. He had that one person in his life say, oh, you know what you should do? You should get up on this. You're a funny guy. When you do that impression of the guy next door, that is the best thing. And then you see this guy get on stage. Nobody knows who he's doing an impression of. He has no comic timing. He has no, but he's there. And I had nothing. I had nothing but my fear. But whatever, that fear was my connection to a larger audience. And somebody, I tell this story all the time because it's so, uh, you know, my philosophy of uh, of life is one of the first earmarks of making it was I got to, somebody said in the early 80s, you want to play Radio City Music Hall? And I said, yeah. And uh, they put it on sale and it sold out in a couple of hours. 
Radio City fucking music. Impressive, man. That's then, awesome. It was. But then they said, you, you want to do a second show? And I said, yeah. And that sold out. So I had two shows in one night in the early 80s. And my wife and I are uh, backstage between the two shows. And I'm looking out the window and I'm looking onto 7th Avenue. And 7,000 people are teaming out of Radio City Music Hall who had just seen the first show. 7,000 people are coming in. So in that, on that 7th Avenue there, there's like 14, 15,000 people. There's cops. There's a traffic jam. There's stanchions. There's every and and I'm just looking out the window and and Terry, my wife, says, "What what are you thinking?" And I said, "I you know what? I'm this goofball from New York, and I'm in the the biggest city in America. I'm in New York City that has 10 million people. Do you realize that nine million nine hundred eighty five thousand people don't give a fuck that I'm here?" <laughs> That's how we always think, though, with our brains, man. I mean, the stand-up comics are—I just feel like always go to that that one part of your brain where you're like, "Yeah, you're not really relishing the moment." It's great, it's but, but 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 that, but that is the truth, you know. As a judge yeah. on AGT, the truth is just because I'm not responding to something doesn't mean something's not good. Doesn't mean somebody won't relate. Doesn't yeah. mean you know. I've always suffered from that because you know, even as somebody whose persona uh, kind of. Uh, pre, you know, um, I, I have the reputation of being silly. You know, I have the reputation of, uh, I, I don't think within the community of comedy with anybody was talking about, you know, the brilliant material of Howie Mandel. So much so that uh, throughout the 80s, which killed me, to be honest with you, um, I can't tell you how many times I ended up on Letterman's top 10 list. You know, and not as not in a flattering way, you know, <laughs> we'll go make them, you know, and number eight, we're going to force them to sit through a Howie Mandel concert, oh, you know, oh, man. you know, and even like I know for a fact that, you know, and, and I'm a really cognizant of who doesn't like me, you know, because they made it really well known, you know, who doesn't like me and who has. And I get it, you know, and I, I, I kind of get it. But we as comedians are so. Um, you know, uh, vulnerable is is probably the word, and we're vulnerable in many ways. We're vulnerable personally because you know, even though we are people that you know, dealing with pain through laughter is not that far. If you look at the two masks of tragedy and comedy, they're very close together. They're both smiling, just one's upside down. But the point is that we are out there, and we're out there publicly, like even in a club. Look at think of the way it's set up. You know, it's like a, a bad day. You go up and the audience loves you, you think, you know, and they're laughing and you're having a good time. It's like The Bachelor. And then you're still in the room. You say good night. You're still in the room. And the next guy goes up. And you know what? They love him more. <laughs> they, you know, that, that's really fucking hard. Of course that's they do. Really, it's the they same do. people. It's like that b- before The Bachelor was on the air, we were the original. The rose ceremony was just laughter. Did you have sets ever where you quote unquote bombed? Did I do. You have I, sets? Yeah, always. I, I still do. Wow. do you, you do your past that? You've passed the oh, bombing? Fuck. No, I'm not past that. <laughs> Especially, I don't, think, I, I don't think there's very many comedians that are past that. I think, I think even even as you get so big with your with fame, I feel like there's more pressure for you to do well with your new material, maybe. I mean, or maybe you get laughs easier. I don't know. I mean, I'm not that. No, no, no. But that's why I like to go where it's really hard. Like where three people are sitting there and they've been sitting there for six hours. But I I find like corporate dates. I don't know if you're doing a lot of corporate dates, you know, those aren't people that paid to go see Chris or Daryl. 
You know, those are people there who are, they, they probably don't even want to be there. They're sitting there with their, um, their bosses. So if you said something, whatever you say, they look to the person next to them to see whether it's okay to laugh at that. They usually give you, they want their uh, corporation to be integrated into what you do. You know, or they or they put up these rules, you know, comedians, for the most part, we are and shouldn't be the lowest rung on the totem pole of show business in the sense that, you know, if you hired any musician, you'd hope that they would play their hits or whatever. But nobody has any fear in hiring comedians say, you know what, don't mention anything political. Um, don't mention any, I don't want to hear anything sexual. I don't want to hear anything. And you got all these rules and you go, but you hired me. And those are probably, that's my, some of my best material. You know, you don't hire the Rolling Stones and say to Mick, you know, don't do uh, satisfaction. Um, and, and our, our group is not going to like that. Don't do, you know, no dancing. Can you just sing and stand still? But they have no, nobody has any qualms about telling the comic you're going going on last and this is how we want you to do what you do yeah i i did a show that i bombed for 60 minutes before the show um the producer came back and said they're a little bit late tonight they're praying and i was like wait this is a prayer group yeah it's a prayer group yeah i said do you understand i'm from saturday night Live?" You know, and she's like, well, yes, of course. That's why you're here. And I said, do you understand my my Bill Clinton, Sean Connery, foul mouth, SNL? She's yeah. like, if you could tone it down, it'd be okay. It'd be good. You know, just tone that sort of stuff down. I'm like, so it, it, it's sort of like, you know, Richard Lewis once had a joke where someone, he, he said, he was talking about a night, he goes, it was like doing Torch Song Trilogy Without the homosexual theme, right? <laughs> yeah. I and, had one where they, they called me and they said, will you do a fundraiser for Holocaust survivors? And how can I say no? You know, you can't say no, and especially as a Jew. What I didn't realize until I got there was at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel here in L.A. And I get there. Oh, and they, they said, uh, oh, Howie, that's great. And the rabbi will bring you on. I go, okay, we have a rabbi from Israel. The rabbi will bring you on. He goes, can you send your bio over? You know, it'll help him with the introduction and that. I go, okay, I'll send my bio over. Anyway, I get to the Beverly Wilshire Hotel. And I thought I was, uh, it was a fundraiser for Holocaust survivors. It was, but I didn't realize the audience was actually holocaust survivors so like i think the youngest person in the room was 80 a lot of them were um they 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 weren't mobile anyway this rabbi gets up they go you're going on a minute get backstage so the rabbi goes on he's a guy from israel and they're all holocaust survivors and he, he says you're going on after him and he starts speaking and he goes you know in 1941 in this small town in poland um the nazis came in and uh, took the children from everybody and burned the children in a fire pit alive in oh the center God. of the village. We must never forget. And you hear the, the people in the audience going, I, I, and they're, they're, they're crying. He goes, in February of 1943 in Lithuania, the women of the so-and-so village were taken. They were raped and killed and slaughtered. 
over 6,000 women. We must never forget. And he's got this litany of dates and these horrors that happen without even a break. He goes, in 1979, this young man came to California and he was on a show called Make Me Laugh. There was no... There was the Holocaust of my career. There was no space, no segue, no warm up. And he goes, ladies and gentlemen, Howard Mandel. And I walk out and it's not a smattering of uh, applause. It's sniffing and crying and just horrible. And it's at the Beverly Wilshire and it's in the ballroom. And the ballroom is set up that, you know, there's a stage there. And, and there was a piano on the stage. It just happened. It's always there. And so I walk out and I go, how is, every, how is everybody? I, don't, I just didn't know what to say. It's quiet. Anyway, I do like one or two jokes. And at the second joke, a guy in the middle of the room, an old man, maybe in his 90s, with you could see an IV drip down into the thing. He looks after the joke. He just looks at me and goes, Hah! he goes, Hah! and he turns he turns his, uh, he's got a, a wheelchair. It's not electric. It's, uh, he's got it with his hands and it's not oiled. And he goes, so he's walking out on me. He's rolling out on me. But the rollout is, I'm, I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say six minutes to get from where he is to the door. So all you hear is, there's no oil on the wheels. And he leaves. And then he finally leaves. And I do one more joke. And the lady in the front starts hitting her fork on the table. And she's going, young man, young man. And I go, me? And she goes, yes. She goes, enough with the talking. Sing already. So they had no idea who I was. I look over at the uh, lady who hired me. And she's going, wrap it up, wrap it up. And, and signaling that they're tired. So I just say goodnight, and I and I ran off the stage. And my buddy Rich, who's with me, where uh, wherever I go, says, "Don't worry, I got, I got this, I got this, I staked it out." So we run backstage, and we run through the kitchen, and he and he's got the uh, service elevator waiting for me. The service elevator. We run into the service elevator. He presses two. We go up to two, and then as I, and I'm just like sweat. I got flop sweat all over me. As I get to the second floor, the door opens. The entire fucking audience is standing there at the door with the guy in the wheelchair, front and center, who just looks at me and goes, and then the door closes. And, you know, this is not too long ago. This is just within the last couple of years. But this happens a lot. Yeah, I'm that's one of the best stories I've ever heard. I love they make you know the worst moments make the best stories and that's what people don't understand you know in in this day and age and I don't know how you guys are dealing with it I even had a discussion the other day with my wife about saying I think I'm thinking of not doing stand-up comedy professionally anymore you know of of, I, I didn't quit so but but I'm thinking about it I would still do it but I don't want to get hired for it I don't want it to be broadcast because in these politically correct times, we have lost and we are losing our art form, you know, and our art form. I came to be a comedian in the 70s and in the late 70s, I was lucky enough to come out here to L.A. and watch the uh, watch Richard Pryor each and every night on stage cobbled amazing. together it was amazing cobbled together uh, my jaw was on the fucking floor every waking moment of it and i watched them cobble together what eventually became live on the sunset strip which i believe is one of the most seminal comedy concerts in existence and probably what 
you know, a, a very inspirational piece that probably brought us what, you know, Chappelle is today, you know, and, and, and Chris Rock and, and a lot of other people and me, you know, I don't know that people would watch me and know that I was inspired by, uh, by Richard Pryor, but here's what he inspired me with. He was talking, this was right after, um, he got out of the hospital after he almost died freebasing, you know, and he was on stage. He had the scars. You could see the scars. He was still wearing the, the bandages. Is that the he one was, he got? The, the fire? Yeah. You remember there was he, a joke? Remember up. there was a joke that people used to do? They used to light a match and then they used to show the match moving and they'd say, what is this? Oh, this is Richard Pryor running down the street. Remember people did that? Yeah. Maybe you're too young for that. I know that, I that became that. like a like ugh. We've heard that a million times. He did yeah, that first. Acid. <laughs> oh, yeah, but he did that first on stage. As soon as he's out of the hospital, that's what he's doing on stage. And the, <laughs> the the first thing that hit me was when you think about Richard Pryor, because I was a big fan of you know Rodney Dangerfield and George Carlin and uh, you know Johnny Carson, and I'd seen all these people. It was the first time that I was aware there was somebody on stage that the the material if you take away the humor and the material here was a guy who was raised in a brothel by his grandmother who's drug addicted who's had relationship problems who's for all intents and purposes these are not funny stories this this life is horrific but yet he's taking these as the seeds like the characters that he's depicting are all based in authenticity and reality and he's taking a white kid from Canada who has no connection whatsoever in this lifestyle of who he is and making it relatable on a human level. And, and not only that, he's eliciting laughter. And I thought, you know what that is? That's just pure bravery. Just take away that brilliant. everything that you would want to hide. But that's what was brilliant. He was just open. And that's why that's what made me be okay with, you know, showing the audience that I'm terrified telling the audience at, at a moment when I go blank or things happen, you know, there's, there's a, a moment I will recall. I was in a, I was in a, doing a concert. We've all had these moments, you know, horrible moments that go wrong and they're unforeseen. I had this moment where, you know, this is every comic does. You could be in front of a thousand people, 10,000 people, and they're roaring and they're eating you up and they can't get enough of you. But there's one person sitting in front who is frowning and not enjoying it. And Always. I don't care if there's 10,000 people in that audience, the whole show becomes about that one person. And I would walk off and go, the fucking guy in the blue sweater, he hated me. He hated me. Why the fuck is he sitting up? So, that, so you know that as a comic and those who are listening that aren't comics, our neurosis, we focus, we want, we need to Always. be accepted by, especially the people who aren't accepting mm -hmm. us. And if that is very vivid to you that you're not being accepted, you try harder. So I've got this role going and I'm telling you it's waves of laughter and excitement and electricity and it's a huge room. And then finally, I just couldn't, I just can't, you know, it's my, maybe my ADHD kicking in. I, I, I look at that guy. He's not even looking at me. You know, he's just looking past me. Like I, it's almost like he's waiting. When is this fucking thing going to be over? So you can take me like whoever he's with drag them to this. So I go, can I just say something? The guy in the blue sweater up front, you, you don't even look at me. You're not laughing at me. What the fuck is your problem? <laughs> you know? And the lady sitting beside him says, he's blind. Ah. And I, like, uh, just because it's, it's a, it's a knee-jerk reaction, I go, he's blind. I said it out loud like nobody else heard, but I said, he's blind. You can hear 
the air siphoned out of the whole room. Everybody's heart dropped in the stomach, including me. I just, I've never felt like a wash of sweat come from the interior of my body. Just, I was soaked in one second. I go, he's blind. Oh, oh. And, and it just, you know, and that, that role of uh, uh, that, the, the roar of the laughter had gone. It was dead silent. You've never heard 10,000 people that quiet. You could hear a fucking pin drop. And I don't know why I just like, and I was devastated. And I, I said, I can't get any worse. So I might as well ask. I said, can I ask one question? Why the fuck would you spend the money on a front row seat for a blind person? Yeah. And the audience started to giggle at that. I said, you could have saved money. You could put him in the balcony and you could lie to him and tell him he's got the best seat in the house. He's front and center. He wouldn't know the fucking difference. It would be easier for me. It would be easier for you. And the audience, I got a, a roar, you know, to come from the depths of that moment and to rise up. Those are the moments that I love more than ladies and gentlemen, Howie Mandel and they applaud just for showing up. Absolutely. You know, there's a tape, there's a tape called Live and Smoking. Uh, it's prior at the Improv on 44th and 9th in New York City. And um, I was told to watch it because it was evidence that even Richard Pryor, who was also my hero, could have bad nights. So I watched it, and, and, and there he was, and he didn't appear to have any material, and he was smoking a cigarette. And for lack of a better word, he was jamming, say, in the same way a musician might jam. And, right. then, I, and then I heard... One line from um, um, the, the concert you mentioned, what's the one? Live on Sunset Live Strip. On Sunset Live Strip. on Sunset Strip. I heard one line <clears throat> that later in Live on Sunset Strip was three minutes long. And I was, I said, that's how you fucking do it. Yeah. Yeah, that's how you yeah. do it. You, I also, I told a story, I don't, I don't know if it's appropriate here, but I, I told a story, we, we Mike Binder did a, it's on Showtime, the comedy store. Did you see the comedy store documentary? I saw I a couple heard. episodes. You know, uh, and and I think your question was, what was it like down here in the 70s at the comedy yeah. store? <laughs> you didn't <laughs> back in the day. We're, we're bringing it back around, Howie. We're get, we'll get no, there. No, but this is what it we'll was like. There. It was the, yeah. it was the uh, you know, I didn't know that I was in the middle of a, a boom. You know, I was talking to Rick Newman, you know, Rick Newman, who used to own Catch a Rising Star. Mm-hmm. You know, he opened that as a cabaret. You know, it was singers and then comedians and singers and comedians. He he represented Pat Benatar. And then what happened? The comedians would just go on and do their patter between great singers. A lot of great singers came out of Catch a Rising Star. Mm. There seemed to be. You know, as rock and roll was going by the wayside, you know, we had uh, rock and roll were our, our, our heroes of the 60s, you know, and, and uh, they had the message for the young people, you know, they have peace, love and rock and roll. That's what Woodstock was all about, you know. And then what happened is as disco started moving in, there was really no message in disco. It was just, you know just hang loose. I don't know what it, what it was, but the studio studio 54 kind of era came in and people were disco dancing, but there was no message. He opened up this club. And what happened is comedians started to uh, be the bearers of the, they started to be the messenger of our society in the way that, um, you know, people like Richard Pryor and, but, but they would, you know, uh, one of the first people to come out, to come out of, uh, Catch a Rising Star was, uh, Freddie Prince. 
mm. you know, not not my job, man. You know, and and it was a it was a comedian talking about the plight of being a Hispanic growing up in in New York and what it was like. And he ended up, you know, parlaying that into, uh, you know, his his sitcom. But it became they became the voices. And Rick Newman said that people started he was more surprised than ever. This is before the improv. People started coming to the club to see the comedians and the. The rock and he said Mick Jagger was there like when he was in New York three times a week just to see the comedians because they would talk about the current events. They would talk about the politics. They would do what rock and rollers were doing in the 60s. And that just by virtue just happened. It wasn't planned. And Catch a Rising Star is probably much more well known as the hotbed for comedy than it was for music. By the same token, when uh, Mitzi Shore here in, in California, you know, got divorced, Sammy Shore had opened up a room at what used to be Ciro's, which was a famous Hollywood restaurant, which became the comedy store for his yeah. friends. You know, uh, Sammy Shore was Elvis Presley's opening act and all these older comics would come to it. He lost the business in the divorce. None of his friends would come visit. So all these young comics started, you know, showing up like Freddie Prinze and, and Jimmy Walker and all these guys at the beginning, people started, when I got there, I got there in 77. I cannot tell you because to this day, it doesn't exist anymore. The lineups went all the way down sunset up the ramp of the Hyatt, you know, which, which is next door three shows a night for nobody, like for, for not anybody that you would see. And then that became the hot pet. And on any given night, when you walked in, you know, besides Letterman being the host, which didn't mean anything, he was a young kid from Indiana. Everybody, anybody who was anybody just wanted to be part of that. And you could see, you know, whether it was Rodney on stage or you go into the main room and it was Johnny Carson working out his set because he, while he was doing the tonight show, he was playing Vegas or whether it was Buddy Rich in his orchestra used to play there all the time on Monday nights or Count Basie used to come. It, it became, it, it's not anymore, but it, comedy was the cool place. You know, I think that comedy became, we went back to what we were, you know, the clowns, you know, but, but the truth of the matter is that was the rock and roll of the late seventies. And that's where anybody who was hip and happy, I think Saturday Night Live still has that, but that's probably the last bastion of coolness in the world of comedy. You don't feel like the comedy store has, has seen that resurgence. I mean, they, yes. it's, I think you know, there's it's a resurgence. It's really come back. Uh, I mean, it's not going to be what it was back then, but it's it's really like returned to something amazing. It, it really is something amazing. It's really <laughs> successful. The voice of comedy and the numbers that Saturday Night Live. It, there's a resurgence, and it is, it is. A, a real industry and something that need, you know that that you, you know that that is worthwhile. But having lived through the '70s, there. It's not that was the epicenter. That was the most exciting, hottest, white flame oh, place on earth. <laughs> if you go into the comedy store, even the improv, you look in the audience, the number one box office stars of the day were always there. The number one music stars of the day were always like that. You could not get into that place. Now you can get in. They're successful. They're sold out. Yeah. There's always somebody good to see. But I think it's also it, 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 there was a need for it at that time. That, that, that was the voice. That's why Saturday Night Live became what it was. Saturday Night Live at the, at the beginning, you know, was making fun and pointing fun. You still are at, at culture. But we were seeing things that were so. If you look at 1975, Saturday Night Live, you know, it's really tame now. 
But I remember in the moment watching it live, thinking, you know, when 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 um, what's his name, the Bassomatic, my Canadian friend, um, Dan, Dan, uh, Dan Aykroyd, the Bassomatic. You know, the, the the airwaves were filled with these infomercials. You know, that was just part of the normal. So for him to take a live fish on TV without the political incorrectness of whatever that meant, and just put it into a blender on live TV. You have no idea the shock value that that had in the mo- like you can't shock anymore. That's what's <laughs> no, gone. I when you used to go that, into yeah. those when you used to go into those clubs, and that like I, I was shocked by the things that Richard Pryor was doing. I was, sh- but you know, in a positive way, shocked by the things I was seeing on Saturday Night Live in a positive way. You know, but you can't be shocked anymore. There's just too much. There's too much noise now, so you can't. It's there's no place to really scream. Yeah, I mean, what I, was the I, question? <laughs> you're talking about old days. I mean, look, I heard all these stories from. I started at the comedy store in San Diego, down in La Jolla, and uh, I've heard these stories for years about what it was and what it was like. So then I moved to LA in 2007, 2008, right around there, and uh, I came up and it was dead. The store was dead. There was nothing happening. There was nobody. Like you know, you're lucky on a good night for like 20, 30 people. Maybe the weekends right. had a little bit more people, but it was. I, I just kept saying all these stories. I keep hearing about the glory days of this place, and they kept. You know, Tommy was there back in you know the day, and Tommy was saying like you know, well, you know, Mitzi's thing was always you know you, you you're on the Sunset Strip. People will come to you. You don't need to you know you don't need to worry. It'll come back. You just have to give it time. And granted, it took a long time to come back. It did. Like no, it said, it's like, a know. it's a it's a good business now, but it isn't. It stand-up comedy isn't what it was. That never no, existed. It's, it's for, just different. Yeah, it's completely different because it was new. You know, even as a young guy, like any time now, any place in America or Canada or wherever you are, you know, people have seen stand-up comedy. They've gone to a comedy club. You, you have to remember that at this time in the mid seventies, I, I don't think there's a city in existence in America that doesn't have one comedy club at least one or two days a week. In, in America in 1975 or 73, I don't think there was a town that had a comedy club outside of New York and L.A. I don't think that they even existed. So th- the fact that it was new and it was fresh and it was, yeah. you know, it just didn't exist. Now, now it's, a success, it's considered a successful business and it's a, it's a great art form. But that was a moment in time that nobody is the architect of but humanity. It just happened. And yeah. if you're lucky enough to be where something happens, then you're lucky enough. You know, it's like in 20 years from now, they're going to say, what was it like living through the pandemic? You know, it just happened. And maybe, you know, there are things that are happening now that will inform how we live in the future, even the way we entertain and do comedy, even the fact yeah. that we're on a Zoom right now or a <laughs> podcast. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this about uh, stand-up comics. Do you think a stand-up comic will ever win America's Got Talent? I want there to be, you know, the, the frustration for me, and it's not real frustration. It's just, uh, well, I live frustrated in life. Yeah, there's a few but that have come it, close. There's, you know, Taylor Williamson and a few other guys like that have, have, have finished pretty high up there, but they've never won. Here's what they, you know, I don't think people understand what goes into comedy. I, I don't think people know what it is. Uh, the, uh, that reminds me of a story at the uh, the um, there used to be an Aspen Comedy Festival, and at the Aspen Comedy Festival, they uh, one year honored Seinfeld, and uh, he got this trophy and everything. And in his speech, and I'm not going to do justice to this, but he talked about in his speech as a comedian, 
we're not used to getting awards. We're always, you know, it's funny. We even talk about the fact that Johnny Carson, it was a big deal that if he offered us to sit down, whereas, you know, the third tier guy on a sitcom, like Donnie Most, who was on happy days, could sit down and be the, the opening guest. They knew who the, who an actor was on a sitcom who wasn't even the star, but a comedian, but he would talk about how comedians don't win awards, you know, actors win awards, you know, and think about this, an actor for the most part, you know, is picked up in the morning and driven. They don't drive themselves to work. They're driven to work. And somebody, they'll sit in a chair while somebody will comb their hair and fix their face. They don't even do that themselves. Then somebody will hand them their clothes and tell them what to wear. And then uh, they'll go into another room where somebody's put a piece of tape on the floor and they say, when you come in, I need you to walk in and then stop on this piece of tape. And here's what I need you to say. He's given words or lines that are written by somebody else and then a director will shoot it or a cinematographer will shoot it from different angles and they'll cut it it won't look like what it was then but you as a public will go fucking brilliant this guy is brilliant this guy pretended he's brilliant not only is he brilliant (laughs) we're going to give him an award and i'll also take my political insight from this brilliance whereas a comedian a comedian creates their own character for the most part, a comedian choreographs, knows where they're going to stand, what they're going to do. They've written all the material. They deliver the material. They need more from the audience than any other form of art, right? You need, if you don't, even if you're funny, if you don't elicit and it's hard to get a a laugh every 30 seconds, then everybody knows you're going into the toilet and we don't get awards for that. Yet we do more. I think we've always been treated with incredible, acceptable um, disrespect. Yeah, <laughs> I think so too. I mean, uh, I don't know. I um, I'm 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 always hopeful that uh, whenever I see stand-ups go on there. But uh, I'll, I'll tell you this: I auditioned for America's Got Talent years ago, probably like ten years ago, and uh, I had the producer tell me they go, "Well, like, you know, comedy's not really our priority here. If you don't have a good backstory, we're probably not going to feature you for much, if at all." And I was like, oh, okay. And they said, well, but remember, you're in front of millions of people, so this could be great for you. And I was like, okay, great. And then, like, you know, it was one of those things that uh, I, the producer said, you know, they go, in our opinion, no, no comedian will ever beat out dancing dogs or some sort of gimmicky type of act because America's just so fascinated with something that's, you know, is shiny. And, and they don't want to really care about, like, comics sitting there doing – you know, so, you know, because you're just because you're just a man, you're just an amusing man talking. Mm -hmm. So when somebody comes out, you you know, but but that being said, people are getting more open and they need laughter more. And here's what I would say to you. I mean, I don't know what you just because you got turned down, you know, I always say the difference between anybody listening to this and Elon Musk is (laughs) Elon Musk did it. And you didn't. And, and as far as anybody goes in the career, it's just how much shit are you willing to take? So they said no to you, you should go back the next year. And if they yeah. said no to you, you should go back. The, if that's what you want to do, then you go back. And it, how much shit can you take? And the people that are deemed more successful are the people that have taken more shit than you. And even when uh, the outside world sees the success, there's always a lot of shit. You know? Yeah. And, and that shit isn't a bad, you know, it's just part of it. Like, I'm, you have no idea, or maybe you do, how many times I'm turned down, even now, you know? And I get more negative shit than, but 
I understand at this point in my life, I put myself out there for it. You know, I'm the one that's pulling down my pants and saying, kick me. And you know what? <laughs> one time something good is going to come up. So I don't give up because I've, I've kind of read through therapy. I've redirected my needs to other areas, but I am constantly publicly humiliated. And we all are in this. business. <laughs> I think, you know, I, you know, people say, well, you had a nice career and you were very complimentary tonight. I feel like 99% of the things I auditioned for, I didn't get, you know, SNL turned me down twice. I had no reason to keep going. I remember being in Hell's Kitchen. I was 34 years old and go, I'm already too fucking old to be on that show. And that sort of thing. I've been trying to get on the show from day one, from 23. Lauren, I guess, doesn't love me. And even when I had the number one show on NBC, you know, when Deal or No Deal was going through the roof, NBC was going through, we had 100 million people, uh, you know, watching in one week, couldn't, couldn't get booked on SNL. Crack not it. even, not even in the sketches where they were depicting Deal or No Deal, oh. you know, <laughs> so, but that's okay. I'm not, I'm not, yeah. I'm not, I got no sour grace, but I'm just saying that you constantly, I, I'm okay. I, my career is okay. Who's ever there and whoever makes these decisions, that's okay. I, I can't. I, uh, you know, uh, fault you for what you like or what you don't like or what you yeah. think it doesn't work. It's okay. It yeah. really is. And, and you know what? I won't stop asking, you know, if I could get on SNL, that would be a dream come true. It really would, but that's okay. Just like I was trying to get on the tonight show, you know, the tonight show was when I was coming up in the business, Chris, I know you started in 2007. You know, if you used to walk up in the, if you walk down the street and somebody didn't know you and they happened to get into a conversation with you and they say, what do you do for a living? And you would say, I'm a stand up comedian. The knee jerk reaction in the 70s, the knee, or and even in the 80s was, have you been on Johnny? Mm. You know, and if you didn't say yes, they go, oh, well, I don't think you're Must a not be that good. Yeah. You know, I was on Merv and I was on Mike and I was on all these shows. But I wasn't on Johnny. And I always had the, um, his name was Jim McCauley, was the casting person for The Tonight Show. And he would, I'd always see him at the comedy store and he would, and I'd go on and I'd audition and he'd always tell me, you know, I'm being honest with you. Not only was Tonight's set not Carson material, you are not Carson. You will never be. And I, and then I'd say, well, see me again. And I'm basically doing the same thing. And I keep showing him. No. And, and then in, uh, I think it was 83 or 84, you know, uh, Joan Rivers started uh, filling in as guest host. And at that time, she became, she was huge. Her numbers were even bigger than Johnny's when she would guest host. So much so that when uh, Fox ended up opening up a network, Fox didn't exist. The, the, the headlight of that whole launch was they were going to have a late night show and it was Joan Rivers show. You know, that's how she got her talk show, which kind of broke her relationship with Johnny. But so when Joan used to come out to L.A., she lived in New York. But when Joan used to come out to L.A. to host The Tonight Show, she used to come to the comedy store to work out her opening monologues at the work out her sets. So I called Mitzi one day in 83 and I said, is Joan working out? Uh, to, she goes, she's not coming until Thursday. And I said, is there any way she's doing a nine o'clock set on Thursday? I said, is there any way you can put me on 845? you know, or 8.50, I guess there were five-minute sets. Can you put me on right before her? Maybe if she sees me. So uh, Mitzi was nice enough to give me that spot. 
And uh, Thursday comes and I wake up and I'm horrifically sick. I have 104 fever. I can't open my eyes. My head is pounding. And I'm going, this is the one fucking, this is a shot. You know, I can't ask Mitzi next week and not show up for this week. Mitzi's going to be pissed. I'm not going to get on. I'm going to, whatever it takes, I'm going to get in my car and I'm driving through Laurel Canyon that night. And I think I'm going to die because I can't even see straight and I shouldn't even be driving. And I'm driving through Laurel Canyon and I get to sunset. I get to the, to the, to the comedy store and I am woozy. And, uh, Joan Rivers walks in the room. You know, I see her by the curtain there and I'm on next. So she's going to be on the room when I'm on. And the person goes, the piano player goes, ladies and gentlemen, Howie Mandel. I walk on, and I'm sure you both of you have had this, and probably at Saturday Night Live. I didn't feel well, but the adrenaline kicked in. Oh, and my yeah. adrenaline kicked in, and I had I crushed it. I had an amazing set. And, and the way it works is, you know, I get to say who's next. And I go, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much. That's my time. This next person needs no introduction. Enjoy Joan Rivers. And Joan Rivers starts walking up the middle, and, I, and I'm about to pass her. And the audience is just, at that time, you know, uh, celebrity meant a lot more. If anybody was on TV, there was just like deafening. It was a, a roar for Joan Rivers. So in the midst of that roar, as she's passing me, walking down the aisle, she goes, you're very funny, young man. And I went, thank you. So now I said, okay, she's going to go do her set. Maybe I can continue this conversation afterwards. Same way she does the set and she's killing and I'm standing at the back. And now my adrenaline is coming down and I'm starting to feel sick again and I'm sliding down the wall. So I go out the front, you know, the stairs that go down to Sunset Boulevard and I go sit on those stairs with my back against the wall. I'm almost, it's really hard for me to, in my mind, to maintain consciousness. And I hear her say goodnight, they're roaring. And then somebody told me, I go, where is she? She hasn't walked out. She's talking to Mitzi and then she's talking to some other comedians. And it was like an hour. And I'm sitting there and I'm breaking out in a sweat. I'm sitting on the stairs and I'm lying. I'm not even sitting. It's embarrassing. She comes through the curtains and she sees me lying on the stairs. And I went, hey, I didn't even have, hey. And she looks down at me. She goes, you know, you're very funny, young man. And I go, thank you. She goes, have you ever been on The Tonight Show? I said, this week is my birthday. And she says, call Billy Samoth. And Billy Samoth was her manager at the time. He's the guy. Did you ever see her documentary? No, when He's I heard the guy it was that amazing. went missing. You should see her documentary. I heard it was amazing. It, yeah, it's amazing. Billy Samoth is the manager that ended up leaving her. But I called the guy the next day. He goes, "You want to be on on uh, tomorrow? You want to?" I said, "Yeah." So I I I got the Tonight Show with with uh, Joan Rivers. So I go on with Joan Rivers. And I can't believe it. You know, the Doc Severinsen Orchestra. As soon as they play, da 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 da. You know, this is something that was a song that I grew up with in my house. I couldn't believe that this little idiot from Toronto is sitting there <laughs> on the couch on the Tonight Show, which is great. There's Doc Severinsen, there's Ed McMahon, there's the band. And I do the set and I have a great set, you know, and she enjoys me in this repartee back and forth. I did it sitting, but it was my act. Anyway, I go home and I thought my life is great. And my litmus test has uh, come back positive because... Now I can say I've been on The Tonight Show. So that morning, credibility. <laughs> I get a call from Jim McCauley. And he says, Johnny saw you on with Joan last night. Can, can, you, can you come on? Can you hear me? It went away yeah. for a second. Yeah, you're good. Yeah, okay. Johnny saw you. Can you come on next week? He loved you. I went, are you fucking kidding me? Yes. 
<laughs> yes. That's amazing. So the next week, and, and uh, I, at that time, they were real. There are certain shows that are really, uh, you know, talk shows, unlike this Zoom, we didn't go over the questions and what the answers would be. Had you gone over the uh, I would have gone over the questions. If you had gone over the answers, you would have saw each answer is 22 minutes. So we have time for two questions <laughs> on this hour podcast. But but the point is that, uh, you know, Jim McCauley went over this and, and he started tinkering with my stuff. He started saying, you know, Johnny won't like that story. Tell this story. And then I go, but that story, I can't open up with that story because that story is like a little. And he was and I was so unhappy, like I'm doing the Tonight Show. But the guy that is my producer is telling me how to do my act differently than I would do my act. So I figured, Howie, you got one shot. This is it. So I, I planned to do something, and it's on YouTube. I planned to do something that, I, that wasn't in the cards, you know, and it wasn't. I, 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 so I figured this is my shot. I'm here. If I get no more, that was it. And um, I'm sitting there and I did the stories and they're, they're giggling a little bit with the Jim McCauley worked out with, but it's not really killing. And then I said, fuck it, I'm going to do what I want to do. And I reach in at that time, I carried a handbag and it was in the shape of a hand, this kind of a corny little pun. But uh, those were all my props. And I pull out 3D glasses and I say to Johnny, do you like 3D glasses have you ever tried three he goes yeah i go could you put these on put these on this is so amazing i try to and then johnny is standing there with the 3d glasses and i remember my i can hear my heart pounding in my chest i go this is going to go really good or really bad and i pulled out like whatever i had in there some sort of weird stuffed animal and i'm sitting you know how he's at the desk and i'm sitting in the guest chair and i just count to three I go one two three and i whip it right at his face and i threw like he didn't know this was coming he didn't know. And I just smashed Johnny Carson in the face with a stuffed animal, made him look like an idiot with the glasses on. And there was a pause where he just, he's kind of taken aback. And then he just lost his shit. He started laughing. Cause I, and I said, doesn't it look like it's coming right at you? You know? And, and, and he just lost his shit. And that was the, the savior that got, you know, and, and that worked. And he asked me to come back two weeks later. I ended up, ended up doing 22 spots with Johnny shit. Carson. Wow! After they told you that uh, you're not, Johnny I would Carson never material. be on the show. So that show story material. harkens back to your story, Chris. Yes, uh, I would not stop calling, and I, I could send a tape of yours in too. But I have no power there to <laughs> ADT. And I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. Because in this day and age, different. I knew in 1977 that if I wanted to make a career in show business, there was a few spots to go. You know, there was either. The, the comedy store or there was the improv in New York or catch a rising star. Th- th- those are the places where anybody who's anybody is going to be seen today. There's a heart. It's hard to get seen. So if there's any outlet, even if it's an outlet that you cannot win, you win just by showing up when 10 million people see your act. I hearken back to my story about the radio city music hall, you know, 9,985,000 people didn't give a shit, didn't show up, didn't buy a ticket, don't like me, don't care. The point is, <laughs> if the judges don't say anything or the audience there doesn't, you play to that camera, you, pay, you play to 10 million people, and I promise you, you're going to have 2 million more fans than you had before you showed up. 
So if yeah. nothing else, everybody that's been on, it ups the ticket price oh, on yeah, your club yeah, dates. Yeah. It ups the amount of people are there. So I think our problem in life, and this is my problem in life, and so much so that you know I need medical help, is overthinking. Yeah, is what overthinking. overthinking. Oh, I think okay. in, in, instinctually we should know. You know, I think it what brings us above the animal species is, you know, we have ideas and, and we should just do it like Nike says. But if you think of it, if you think about it, it, you'll put the kibosh on your idea because it makes sense. What are the chances, you know, like you're saying, you, if you think about AGT, you know, comics are not really appreciated. Yeah, comics but- probably will never win. So what is the result of that thought? I probably shouldn't do it. Instead of saying... Just you know, yeah, it's like go. dropping yeah. in on that club. Anytime there's an empty, I don't ask a lot of questions when I'm in Oklahoma <laughs> and I say, is there an open club at two in the morning? And the guy drops me off and it's, uh, you know, I didn't ask that it was, I didn't know that it was only ladies night. I didn't know that there was just a huge bar brawl in the back an hour before and it's brought down the mood of the room and I'm probably not going to get a laugh, but I went and showed up and did it. And That's the cool, point is yeah. you got to just do it. And yeah. as much as we have comedy, do it for you. And then I think audience uh, participation is just an added bonus, you know? Yeah. Just I, do it I everywhere enjoy, and anytime. I the uh, I enjoyed the, the audition process. Like, I never made it onto camera or whatever, but when I auditioned, um, a lot of people don't know, like, the auditions are, are very quick. Like, it's like two to three minutes, I think, is what it is. Uh, at least that's what it was back then. It's like 10 years ago. But, like, um, they brought me in. They go, okay, you're going to do three minutes. You're going to get a light at two. Let's go. Like, and they, they brought me in. And because the producer, some producer had seen me do stand up before, they put me in front of the executive producers and the showrunner at the time, which I felt was like, oh, that's a lot of pressure, but okay, let's go in a private room. So I did my stand up and the, I did it. And the woman was like, she goes, you know, I'm going to be honest, I've seen you do stand up before. And she goes, um, she said, she goes, you're really dirty. She goes, but I like that. That's my style. And I was like, okay. And she goes, could you stay and just do a 10 minute set for us? That's dirty. Cause we've seen you. And I was like, oh, and this is back when Chelsea lately days were really big. And I was opening for a lot of the, the Chelsea lately people like Frangiola and Sarah Colonna and like those guys. And, uh, and she goes, I saw you do a Chelsea lately tour. And she's like, you know, those tours tend to be a little bit more dirty and a little bit more risky. Can you do that act? I was like, okay. And it was fun. I just ended up staying and having a set in front of them. They laughed. They had a good time. Ultimately, they were like, no, we're going to pass. But it was it was still an enjoyable experience where I, I would probably go back at some point. You know, like I just never Well, did. but you should always go back. I mean, you yeah, never yeah. give up. The guy who won last year was my golden buzzer. And it was a guy by the name of Brandon Leakes. And what he was doing, and he was turned down from 217 till last, he does spoken word. You know, now oh. spoken word is kind of, you know, with that little girl that was at the uh, inauguration. Oh. Kind right, of she was brilliant. Mainstream. Yeah. But, yeah. but it, it wasn't mainstream when we were doing it last year. And he couldn't even work in front of an audience. He was so scared. What I tell comics, if you have a lot of comics listening to this, what really works, what really works is leaning into your authenticity, which means that if you show up on our stage and a joke and a piece of material isn't working, it's kind of fun to watch you in the moment use all your tools and kind of acknowledge that. You know what I mean? Yeah. If, if, and, I'm, if I'm bombing, I'm just going to pander to you, Howie. <laughs> right. But, that, but the point is that you find that people who, do, who have a, a tough moment 
and it just kind of act like it's not and just keep going on and you could see them tense up and they keep going on yet the the room is silent or nobody's liking it and it's just like you're in two different rooms but we had like taylor taylor williamson was really good because he kind of leaned into his discomfort and fear of hiding you know and yeah, we've had people yeah, and we had people that going you know and we've had people on stage who have going you know i'm glad you didn't laugh at that because i would i wasn't going to tell the producers that wasn't a joke and you people have identified the drama in my you know and it was really funny <laughs> that they played into the moment and it made it real it makes you vulnerable and likable if it's not working or you know look at the face that simon made on the on on the uh, you know to me and calling him out on that the way you would deal if you were the most comfortable you could possibly be late at night in a comedy club yeah absolutely i love that That's i the way love to that moment that. i love that moment well, yeah maybe i'll come back and maybe you, could you know i was saying to uh, last year my buddy uh i think it was on champions my buddy dan natterman was on you know dan yeah, I know. I'm from the comedy cellar. But I love that. Mm-hmm. And he was so, and, and, and one of my favorite comedy moments that went viral, you know, was Dan Natterman did his set. I love that. And I think Dan is hysterically funny. One of the best comics out there, stand-up comics out there, smart guy. And he, uh, uh, Simon, hated it. Didn't, <laughs> didn't like it. For whatever reason, he didn't like it. It's, but it's not, it's really about the people at home. And Dan said, you know, uh, all kidding aside, and I don't mean to be offensive, but and I think you know a lot uh, about music, but I don't think you know, I, th- I don't think you know comedy from your asshole, you know, or something like that. You know, he, he was really derogatory towards Simon. And then he went backstage and I heard he was like uh, kind of beside himself and he thought he had done something wrong. And I went there and I and, and I told him. That's the moment that everybody, even on our show, is talking about. That's the moment. And in that episode, that made him seem, and I didn't, I don't remember what the line was, but it was an insult line to to Simon. And just in conversation afterwards, when he was critiquing him, that's what people remembered. That was viral. And that made him more known. And that's made him seem like he was in control of, you just got to take control of the situation and play it for real. And that was yeah. great. And that's why you shouldn't worry. People always say to me, because I always go, I get it. You know, I'll always go to comics where I see when I'm working out in clubs and I'll say, have you been on the show? And they go, no, I don't. That's not for me. The comic's never going to win that. And I'm going to be treated bad. I said, but you're going to be able to do what you do in front of, you Millions know, 10 people. million people. When are you mm-hmm. going to do that? Even if you show it a what? So then don't go to catch tonight, because I bet you there's going to be three or four people in the audience that can't stand you. True. It's a good point. It's a great point. Daryl, we got to um, wrap up here soon. Um, is there anything you want to ask uh, Howie before I ask a couple more questions to close out? I feel like I've been hogging the podcast. Hogging the <laughs> podcast? I don't remember that there was any question. I think I've been hogging. And I'm, a, I'm a, you two are always here. I guess I'm the third person. You are the third person, yes. Absolutely. Is that what it was? I, I, got, I didn't understand the, the title. In fact, I just... I thought Wait. that I was supposed to answer every question with when Howie goes on stage. There we go. <laughs> and the, the, the original idea for this podcast was to have a guest on. And uh, at the end of the podcast, we, asked, we used to ask the guest, tell us a crazy wild story, something that you have uh, maybe experienced, something you maybe experienced or maybe you witnessed, uh, whatever. And, and if the story incriminates you or somebody, if you're worried about incriminating somebody, tell it from the third person. 
So that was the original idea. A lot of people have come on and go, no, we're not fucking doing that. So like we kind of just kind of gave up on it. But, um, we, you know, if, if people still want to tell stories, it's always fun to hear, you know. I think um, I there is There is one story I would like to ask you real quick about. Um, I was told to ask you about your opening act shoe story. Oh, uh, Lou Dinos was my opening act. I, I was uh, in the 80s. I was touring. I was doing like 300 nights a year. And for me, uh, you know, the best comedy is always real comedy. Uh, you know, uh, and, and I love my entree into comedy was really when I was four or five years old. My parents used to watch Candid Camera. And I got that because they used to buy comedy albums and things like that. And they were laughing. And I never got the jokes. You know, I'd hear them laughing and I want to be part of it. I'd go into the living room and there'd be a comic on Merv Griffin or the Jack Parr show and they and he'd be doing a whole routine on mother-in-laws and I'd go, what the fuck is a mother-in-law? I don't even know what that is. So I couldn't participate. The first time I participated in the laughter with older people was when I saw Candid Camera. And Candid Camera, it was like a surprise party. Alan Funt would explain to me what he's going to do. You know, we got a little bucket of water over here. When the guy comes in, the bucket of water is going to fall on him. You know, and then uh, we would wait in anticipation the way you wait at a surprise party when everybody's coming up the driveway. Everybody, huh? it's kind of exciting. And then when the bucket fell on, on the person, we would all just laugh. So I like discomfort. And that's my favorite kind of comedy. And uh, I had a good friend, Lou Dinos, who was constantly opening for me. And uh, one night, uh, and I was on tour and I was on TV. I was, at, I was on St. Elsewhere and I was doing HBO shows and he was my opening act. And in the middle of tour, we're really good friends. I go, isn't this the best? He goes, I, I got to be honest with you, Howie. Um, you know, every night, you know, throughout my act, they're chanting Howie, Howie, Howie. It's a little hard. And then, you know, nobody, nobody, you know, they're not here to see me. And it's, it's a little hard on the ego. So I, uh, the next day I was, uh, we were in some town and I met a guy in a hotel and he said, he's an actor. And I paid him and I said, here's what I want you to do, but we'll make it a little bit funny. I want you to want to come backstage and be the biggest fan. Cause I want him to regret that he wants people to go crazy over him. I want you to be the most obnoxious drunk fan of, uh, Lou. You'll come backstage and, and I'll, I'll direct you on this. And here's what we can do. Cause I just saw something like this on, uh, on TV or uh, take a, I'll get you a, a little can of like mushroom soup or pea soup or something like that. You put it in your mouth when you go around, you, I love you come around the corner and then fake like you puke on his shoes, you know, puke, just puke on his shoes. You'll be the biggest fan and you'll puke on his shoes. So this guy, you know, I have, I'm doing a meet and greet. And then this one guy comes and he goes, look, Dino's, look. Oh my God, I love you. And he goes, I go, he goes, well, I got a fan. I'm so, so drunk. And he's laughing. The guy's drunk. The guy goes around the corner. I guess he comes, comes back. He takes it and he goes, and he, he vomits all over the guy's shoes. And Lou says, Oh my God, I got one fan and he pukes. And, and we were just laughing. And I didn't, I didn't reveal that. I called the guy after the show. Cause I had his, his number. And I, the next night we're playing, you know, a thousand miles away in another city. I, bought the guy a ticket i bought him another can of soup and i said i need you to come back and do the same thing again i'll cue you so here we are you know we were in new york one night that's where you saw him the next night we're in like oklahoma someplace we're backstage i'm doing the meet and greet around the corner and he looks at me he go, and he just walked i just went and he walked over and he puked on his shoes again and lou goes fuck fuck 
what are, and he calls me in the room. He goes, what are the chances that I have one fan follows me every fucking place I go and ruins my whole fucking shit? And I just started, I lost it. I just started laughing. I was like crying so hard. And he, he goes, he goes, wait a minute. You did this. And I go, yeah, I did. And he goes, you fucker. And not only that, he goes, these are my best shoes. These are my dress shoes. Look at the ruin. They're stained. I go, Lou, I'll buy you shoes. I'll buy you shoes. He goes, okay, buy me shoes. So the next day we go to the mall because I own shoes. And he goes to the store and I said, you can buy whatever you want. He buy beautiful, like $300 loafers, you know, dress loafers for a suit. This is going to be his show shoes. And he buys them and he goes, thank you, Howie. And honestly, that is a funny joke, the guy puking on my, on my shoes. And he goes back to the hotel. Now I stay in the mall and I bought the exact same shoes. He bought them in size 10. I bought the exact same shoes in nine and a half, nine, eight and a half and eight. And we were on tour for months. And every five days I would sneak into his dressing room and switch out the shoes for a half size smaller. After two months, I took video of him on stage. He's got this really weird walk and he goes and finally i say to him lou this is after a month why are you walking why are you walking like that he goes i i i gotta call a doctor i go what's wrong he goes i'm fucking 40 years old i go yeah what does that have to do do with anything he goes my feet are growing i go what he goes my fucking feet are growing i gotta ask a doctor they said they've never heard of that and I lost it again, and then he realized it was a joke. <laughs> Is that the story? That's the story. Yeah, Daryl, don't do any shit like that with me, please. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> we tour together sometimes. Okay. The other thing That's I fantastic. did to Lou was I used to say he liked to dress up for the opening act, so he would always wear – he'd had this beige linen suit, you know? And I would, before he'd go out, I'd put my hand on his shoulder and look him in the eye. And i go, this audience is, a, is the audience that, I mean, we're, whatever I was saying, I had, he didn't know, I had a squirt gun in the other hand and the, the gun was down by his crotch. And I would be soaking the front of his pants, but he wouldn't know because my hand's on his shoulder and I'm looking into his eyes and I'd wet the front of his pants. And then he'd go, ladies and gentlemen, Lou Dinos. And then he'd walk out into a crowd like of two, 3,000, and he'd be pacing back and forth in a beige suit with a big wet spot in his crotch. <laughs> and he would eventually notice that, you know, the people in the front would be pointing and asking, and then he, he didn't know what to say, that, but I was constantly terrorizing. I don't do that anymore, but I did <laughs> a lot like, of I, I want to raise Howie. That's what he's going to say. <laughs> I, want, I want double the pay for this, these uh, road gigs. Um, but yeah, uh, our, one of our the last questions I would like to ask you that any, uh, any plans to bring back Bobby's world, man. I love Bobby. I want to, I'm trying to, uh, they, uh, I want to, I'm it's a wonderful it. show for people who don't hopefully, know. Hopefully, go, go look, hopefully, <laughs> you know, I got to bring, I got to, you know, I still do the voice and, uh, well, I do that voice was every job I had when I was younger. You know, that voice was Bobby. It's also, well, they, we brought it back. Uh, I'm in the Mountain Dew ads right now. It's a, uh, as Giz- you know, I'm Gizmo from Gremlins. That's right, the same yeah. voice, but that's the <laughs> same voice. You know, uh, and before that, it was Skeeter from uh, the Muppet Baby. So Skeeter, Skeeter, talk like this, right? And that was Skeeter. That was Scooter's little brother. And then I got Bobby's World. Bobby, talk like this. And then, and then I got cast in Gremlins as Gizmo, and he goes, talk around. Same voice. <laughs> but I had this whole array of jobs with one voice. See, Daryl, you have many voices. <laughs> I can get three jobs with one voice. 
You taught me, friend. I did George Bush when I was doing Colonel Sanders. Oh, well, I know. That was great. Yeah. Oh, you're amazing. You're really an amazing guy. And you are inspirational and aspirational, Daryl, because you've been so open about your life and your struggles and the fact that you're able to uh, navigate yourself through a career and through life and that you're here today. And talking to me is pretty amazing. And it, uh, when, when you uh, DM'd me or said, can you be on, I, t- I, I can't tell you how excited I was to just be here and show up and talk to you. So this has uh, been a great thing for me. Hard for me to take a compliment, but I think I'm just going to do it. Um, it feels wonderful to hear that from you. Thank you so much. Thank you, buddy. I, I hope you we'll, uh, Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah, I appreciate it. I hope we all get to do a show someday, man. That would be fun. A lot, you know, of all three uh, of us. Anytime be, you need uh, me to do anything, I'm, I'm around. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely. Uh, Are I'm you? Thrilled. So, well, uh, the one thing I did want to ask earlier was this whole pandemic, uh, you were always so famous for being a germaphobe, right? Like, yeah. how have. Have you just been walking around going, I told you so, I told you so, I told you so to everybody? <laughs> because you always, no. looking back no, now, I'll it looks like you're ahead of your time. I was ahead of my time, but it's not in a good way. You know, yeah. the, the truth of the matter is that, you know, I was born and raised and lived in my own personal dark pandemic. And the fact that uh, my hell has become a reality externally is not heartwarming. You know, it's, you know, I, there was, but I'm always- glad to hear that you, you, you're willing to come back and do stand up again. You know, there's a lot of people that are just kind of like over it and because, you know, the whole thing. And so well, I, I really I'm afraid hope- of, I'm, I'm afraid of stand up just because I'm afraid of uh, political correctness. You know, I read that, uh, which I thought was brilliant. I was just reading and I don't know if it's true about uh, Pete Davidson is now uh, when he's going out live, he's making people sign NDAs, million dollar yeah. NDA. Did you read that? Yeah. yeah, he signs the NDAs and they take the phones. So you do, your phones get locked up. That kind of sounded like, I mean, they were reporting it like it was crazy. I, I think it's a great idea. I'm so idea. afraid of being taken out of contact. You know, I'm also afraid of, I'm, I'm, and I think you guys are too, and people don't know that. I'm, I'm a really sensitive person. And if I feel that, and I get hurt really easy, but if it's even more hurtful to me if I feel like I've hurt somebody else. So in this day and age when people are yelling political incorrectness, even though it's in the and, and, and I don't know how to I don't know how to take it in because the funniest things, the funniest material I have and the, the biggest laughs I've ever had in my life come from the most inappropriate dark places because that's where comedy comes from. I mean, Absolutely. even when you're a little kid, if you're laughing at a, a clown falling down, you're laughing at somebody else's misfortune. So it's really, you know, it's a hard decision to, yeah. you know, to just well, get up I'm, there and talk in front of strangers. I look forward to the time where all of us will be able to be uh, doing a show together. Um, before we wrap it up real quick, do you want to plug anything? I know you're doing, you've, I've been seeing you plug TikTok a lot and you're, you have a new podcast. I have a podcast I'm doing with my daughter. Um, and awesome. it's Howie Mandel does stuff. And my daughter and I, you know, this is, uh, we realized that, you know, my daughter, I call my daughter every day. My daughter's got two kids. She's a teacher and she's really funny. And we call each other. I spend my day and I always have, I've never stopped doing this, um, prank calls and, uh, 
challenges that we see online, doing TikToks together, um, uh, applying for jobs from want ads and uh, signing my son up against his, uh, what he has no idea, onto dating sites and catfishing. <laughs> and um, so we, we were doing all this and my wife said, well, why don't you record it? It's so funny. And so, and, and, uh, so that's what we started to do. And it's launching in April, April 13th. And it's called Howie Mandel Does Stuff, wherever podcasts are available. Yeah, everybody go check that out and check out his TikTok, all his Instagram and all that other stuff. It's at Howie Mandel, correct? Yep. Okay, at Howie Mandel. Daryl, anything else before we wrap up? Uh, I just, no, I want to do, I want to work with you one day. That's about it. So Anytime you want. I'm, uh, I just I'm love here. It. Are you both in LA? Well, you're in New York, Dale, aren't you? I'm in New York, but. Yeah, you're the, I, you're the voice of SNL now, aren't you? Yes, I am. Indeed. You're doing a good job. Well, I'm trying. We invented a voice for that. You what? We invented a voice. We um, we didn't want to replace Don Pardo, so they put me on, and I invented this announcer voice, and and I put Pardo in some of the vowels so that Pardo never really left. So I would be going up, ba 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 ba, Keenan Thompson, and then I would put Pardo in the when I'd say featuring, I'd put him in on the E's. So sharp vowels, you'll, if you ever listen to them, you'll hear me doing Well, now something. I'm going to listen closer and kind of see. I love the minutia behind. Yeah. Yeah, we didn't. Lauren didn't want to replace part of it. Nobody did. So we do a little. Well, tell, tell Lauren I love the show. I never miss it. And it's a kid's dream. One day he can make a dream come true. But he can't. I don't think he likes it. I don't, think <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I'm All just right. happy to work there. Yeah, well, thank you, thank you and so I'm much. You do too. Bye, bye, everybody. Thank you so much for being on, Howie. We'll uh, we'll we'll keep in touch and we'll talk soon. Awesome, bye, bye. Howie. God bye, bless. Bye. You Take too. Care, buddy. Bye, bye. Yeah, figure out how to. <laughs> I don't know how to do that shit. Either. There you go. And guys, that was Howie Mandel. What a what a great guest. My God, that guy has stories for days, and it was fun to listen to. Um, I could have listened to him for hours and. Uh, I appreciate him being on. That was just a just a fun podcast to have him on. What'd you think, Daryl? I thought it was a great show. I'm sorry I had this deadline, you know, and had to sort of started getting impatient because I do all these Zoom meetings. No, I know we also have uh, our producer has a heart out too, so we uh, we needed to wrap it up. And uh, yeah, but it was you know, it was fun. I to, it was wonderful. Yeah, it was fun to talk to him, and I really do hope we get to do a show together soon. So you know, hopefully that'll make you know happen now that things are reopening. Um, before we do uh, close out, one more reminder, guys, just add us on the social media. He's at Daryl C. Hammond. I'm at Chris Milhouse with two L's. Uh, our producer's at Jim Search. And, of course, Howie Mandel at Howie Mandel. Make sure you check out his podcast and his TikTok. Uh, and, guys, thank you so much. Remember to give us five stars, and we will be back with another great episode very soon. So uh, make sure to tell your friends, and we'll uh, we'll talk to you then.